Dr. Gigi Osler, the new president of the Canadian Medical Association, is the face of modern medicine. She's young, female, and a visible minority. She's also the great-great-great-niece of the legendary Sir William Osler, who was CMA president in 1884, and whom many consider to be the father of modern medicine. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, deputy editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today we have something very different for you. We'll be listening to an interview we published in 1999 about Sir William Osler. In it, Ken Flagel, senior editor for CMAJ, interviews Michael Bliss, renowned historian and award-winning author, who was considered by many to be one of Canada's most prominent public intellectuals. Michael Bliss died last year. Among his accomplishments, he wrote a biography about William Osler. In this interview, Dr. Flagel has an insightful chat with Michael Bliss about Sir William Osler. We hope you'll enjoy listening to it. Michael Bliss? Yes, good afternoon. Hello. I would like to start, if I could, on a personal note, if it's not too impertinent. Um, you're a professor of the history of medicine at the University of Toronto. You're an accomplished and well-published author and three works in medical history and a well-respected commentator on the passing national scene. Why would you want to take on one of the icons of North American medicine who seemed unassailable when I was in medical school at McGill and if one talked about Mosler at all, it was merely to add to the edification? Well, people may have talked about William Osler, but it was uh, almost impossible for them to read about William Osler in the sense that the uh, authorized official biography by Harvey Cushing uh, was uh, difficult to read even in its day and certainly for the last 30 years has been hugely out of date, which means that a person who arguably was titan in medicine generally and certainly the most uh, the highest achieving physician Canada has ever produced was almost impenetrable to the current generation now as an historian um, I found in fact that my own students wouldn't read about Osler because they thought that the literature was was um, uh, incomprehensible and utterly inadequate and um, it seemed to me that this made him a splendid subject for a new biography, that a new biography of Oster was many years overdue. But let's stay with the Harvey Cushing biography for a moment, because I was given it by some students early in my academic career, and I actually did read it and found it quite engrossing. It took me many weeks to read it at bedtime. But its tone was absolutely unassailably reverential. Uh, yes. I came away feeling there was nothing more that could ever be said about this man. Well, nothing... I'm wondering if you didn't feel a little daunted in taking on this project. Oh, I was certainly daunted by the, um, by the length of the Cushing biography, 1400 pages. Uh, I was daunted by the obvious, um, uh, sweep of Osler's own career and uh, the uh, vast amount of source material available. There is now, of course, much more source material available than Cushing had at his fingertips. Yes, it was daunting, and it was daunting, uh, uh, so daunting, uh, the first time I considered doing it, I backed away, and uh, uh, it took me about another 10 years to finally sum up 
the courage to do it. Now, as to the Cushing biographies uh, being so reverential, of course, this has bec- had become another problem with it. There were people who said, this is a phony book because nobody could be like that. Uh, this is hagiographic biography, and it's the, it's not worth reading because it paints Oster as a kind Osler as a kind of plaster saint. It's uh, very important, of course, in our skeptical times, to be able to present a warts and all portrait of a of a person. And of course, in our time, many more new questions have been asked about Osler's life and uh, his achievement. Than, than Cushing ever thought to ask. Uh, there are issues such as the role of women in medicine that hardly occurred to Harvey Cushing. Okay. Um, but as I read this book, and you have already alluded to the sweep of Osler's um, interest and knowledge of literature, modern and ancient, um, it also strikes me that the details of medicine and medical practice are woven intensively through the whole life of William Osler. I know that you do come from something of a medical family, and I was lucky enough to have your brother Jim as my physiology teacher in the Mm -hmm. late 60s, I believe. Um, Did you find that the historian that this added to the daunt, if I may say, <laughs> well, you had to you had to reach up and grab both ends of this very rich life and try to understand them. It was a very hard project, and of course, it's hard for uh, a layman to write about uh, uh, not not just a medical life, but a life lived so intensely in medicine. One of my conclusions was that Osler lived, breathed, and slept medicine, it, and uh, his circle of friends was limited to medicine and so on, so that, yes, it was difficult, but uh, over many years, an historian learns to master what they need to know. When I did the discovery of insulin, I learned a great deal about the pancreas and its secretions. For the Oster biography, I uh, certainly learned more medicine than uh, I ever thought I would know, uh, and I have a very well-thumbed medical dictionary. Uh, one of the uh, crucial times in my work was when I sat down to read the first edition of the Principles and Practice of Medicine and said to myself, will I understand this and be able to write about it? Uh, four days later, when I finished it, I was very pleased that it seemed to me to make sense. It I did... I. I was in the dead house uh, watching autopsies for this book. I followed brilliant medical teachers around the wards of the Toronto Hospital to try to get a sense of what uh, Oslerian teaching is is about today. I, I would certainly agree with you that Osler's textbook is, is, is that way, and I could understand how, in a sense, this man made it a bit easier for you to have access to medicine in, in almost everything he said and wrote. Yes. He was such a literate man and, and so capable of uh, expression which conveyed the meaning. One of the trends or features of your, your present biography that struck me, and, and I must say it strikes me about other modern biographies, is that you are more or less unafraid to make inferences about particular situations or to enlarge the context, to paint the times a bit more realistically for the reader on occasion even going on to some speculation. 
do you agree that that's a feature of modern biographies and that you, you did it? Uh, you know, uh, I'm interested in your comment to that effect because I uh, consider myself a an extremely cautious biographer. And in this book, I feel that I was um, highly careful not to make inferences. I certainly... As a uh, an academic historian, I'm extremely suspicious to the point of disdain of anybody who invents anything, who imagines what dialogue must have been, or who speculates wildly on the basis of limited evidence. My sense in this book is that I... Uh, confine myself very much to the evidence and, and frankly I think that that's in, in some ways a problem because uh, Os- the Osler had so much in the way of reserve he so seldom talked about his deepest inner feelings that it's almost impossible to feel that you've probed to the absolute uh, depth of his character it's true that in some respects I uh, suggest where the evidence may take us on, say, Osler's religious views. Uh, it's also true that I supply a lot of medical context in terms of, I, I try to set Osler in the context of the evolution of uh, both medical knowledge and the medical profession. There I'm drawing on uh, a really rapidly growing and excellent body of uh, literature in the modern history of medicine that uh, a huge uh, number of medical historians have turned out. And um, we have a much better sense of perspective on Osler's times than someone like Harvey Cushing ever had. But I want to emphasize as strongly as I can, I think, that I I don't take liberties I, with my I material. I didn't mean to imply that you were doing bad history. Far from it. I guess what I'm really trying to say is that I think I understand I understand the human side of this man, the flesh-on-the-bone side, a bit better than I ever could after reading the Harvey Cushing biography. I'm delighted. (laughs) Because of the way you wrote this. Good, good. Osler was uh, the son of immigrant parents, an Anglican minister in rural Ontario. Uh, He was born last child of a big family who were moved quite early on to the Dundas area. And he rose from what was essentially frontier territory to national prominence quite early in his life. In many ways, his origins and his trajectory remind me of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he had a kind of Abraham Lincoln rise to national mm-hmm. prominence, at least on the medical scene. Mm-hmm. And I, I take it that there's very little uh, disagreement that Lincoln had something special that caused him to do this. Um, I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you think this is true of Osler, or was it merely a lucky sequence of circumstances that led him? Oh, I think that, uh, well, anybody needs a certain amount of luck to uh, keep on rising, and um, it's more a matter of, of timing. Uh, Osler, the key to Osler's um, rise was an extraordinary uh, commitment to hard work combined with a total engagement with his profession. And um, I think that the, I, I say at some point that Oster was one of those people who achieved 
as much in four hours as most of us do in 16 and also work 16 hours a day so that his productivity is absolutely amazing. In fact, the issue arises as to whether Osler was a, was simply a workaholic. I don't think that's exactly right. Certainly there are a number of Oslerians who are workaholics. But uh, what Osler had was an extraordinary sense of, uh, an extraordinary ability to use time. He um, very early on adopted a, uh, a one-day-at-a-time approach to life, early on learned to compartmentalize his life uh, uh, to an extraordinary degree, always said that it was his work habits rather than native intelligence that was responsible for his success. So would you say, I take it that we still agree, even after the end of the Bliss biography, that this was truly a great man and a great physician. What is the what is the but-for issue with William Oster? What is the one characteristic but-for which he wouldn't have been the person that we remember? Well, just in passing, yes, I think we do agree, a, a very great physician and a very great human being. And, and I want to emphasize that uh, that's a conclusion that I think we come to now objectively. I didn't know Osler. Uh, it didn't matter to me how he turned out. Uh, my biography of Fred Banting is a portrait of somebody who falls very far short of greatness. Uh, indeed, is often a horse's ass. Uh, I weighed all the evidence as carefully as I could, and yes, Osler comes out really well. Now, what is the but-for characteristic? I've already talked about his work habits, and I think that is perhaps the key the other thing that Osler had was an extraordinarily calm disposition. Of course, he's the father of the uh, the famous Equanimitas essay uh, in which he advocates keeping cool to the whole medical profession. He did it himself to a remarkable degree, uh, pushing in an unpublished comment said it was really remarkable that in 70 years of his life, Osler experienced no periods of depression. Uh, he was a man who seems to have gotten up happy to face every day, enjoyed every day, got the most out of every day, never lost an hour to uh, self-doubt, uh, almost never wasted an hour. Um, psychologically, uh, somebody who knew him very well said the psych, the psychologist will have a, would have a real problem with Osler because, uh, his personality is so exceedingly untroubled. Well, this is a powerful machine for human achievement. I take it that you've essentially spent the last few years with William Osler. Yes. Um, uh, much <laughs> of it in the Osler Library. You've got to know him as well as anybody alive, I presume. Um, I'm wondering if you like this man. Would you would you ask this man home to dinner? Oh, uh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, of course, I would. There are lots of people I'd ask home for dinner, including people I didn't like who seemed interesting. But Osler, uh, I would dearly love to meet and dearly love to have home to dinner. If if he came to dinner, uh, he would arrive. Uh, absolutely on time. 
he would be the center of the conversation, no matter how many were at the table. Uh, he would uh, have everyone uh, amused and dazzled by his acumen. The conversation would be heavily medical, but would spread to literature. And then Osler would probably leave very early, uh, claiming that he had to see patients, although, in fact, he might be wanting to get back to his to his books. And I presume that earlier in the evening he might have asked if there were any nieces or nephews in a room that he could go and play with. Uh, a very fine point, yes, he <laughs> would have. And, and indeed, he might well have uh, disappeared during cocktail hour to find the kids in the nursery because he probably enjoyed their company <laughs> more than that of adults. Um, I've been caused to think again about this man's life by, by having the pleasure and fun of reading your book in the last week or two. One of the things that shines out for me is this guy was always on the move, whether it was from yes. Toronto to Montreal to Philadelphia to Baltimore and finally to Oxford. And the moves always seem to come at a time that strike me as inopportune. I mean, his professional life would usually just be flourishing, and he'd had worked hard to bring it to that point, and off he was to the next thing. Why do you think he was like that? Uh, the theme of movement is fascinating in Osler's life, and um, he was also on the move intellectually uh, and uh, moving from pathology into, into clinical medicine, uh, restlessly moving from one project to another, uh, from studying one disease to another. He never stayed put long enough you can say two ways. He never stayed put long enough to become utterly identified with one place or one subspecialty or one disease or one discovery. So he's a man who's on skates and constantly going. At the same time, by never staying in one place, he never got stale anywhere. And when you say that he left at inopportune times, it's true that he turned his often turned his back on a place just at the period of his greatest success. Uh, that surely may be the most opportune time for people to move. That's that's a nice it, it, that's a nice uh, sense of timing, you know. And certainly none of the none of the moves Osler made. Uh, hurt him in a career sense. And I think it's true that Osler did always have a shrewd sense of careerism, mm -hmm. of how you succeeded in medicine. I, I did wonder, actually, though, if he perhaps left Philadelphia a little bit too early uh, with the thought of the new project in Baltimore. Well, uh, Osler jumped at the uh, potential, uh, the promise of Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. uh, it just seemed as though what could be done at Johns Hopkins was uh, so much more promising than what was being done in Philadelphia, where uh, I think I imply that uh, while Osler enjoyed uh, the Philadelphians and enjoyed the company, he was finding that the University of Pennsylvania was still a pretty staid place where, for example, his uh, his hope of introducing the clinical clerkship, which he had experienced at McGill, was being frustrated. 
Uh, and I think that um, the idea that you could start afresh at Johns Hopkins was extremely powerful. And also this this was the case. The, the Surely the move to Johns Hopkins was a beautiful career move. It was in many ways the making of Osler as the great the great American doctor. If you'd um, delayed that move, uh, well, somebody else might have become the great physician at Johns Hopkins. One of the other aspects of Osler and his life is that his friendship and, and professional network, vast as it was, was made up of men, almost exclusively of men, uh, many of them younger trainees. Is this does this tell us something about William Osler, or do his times explain that? <laughs> well, the quick answer is that uh, the profession in his day was made up almost entirely of men, so that it's not surprising that uh, these are. This is his network, but I think also that uh, that that that's not fair to Osler. Uh, it's, it certainly became that the question of women in the profession was a burning one in Osler's day, uh, and particularly true at Johns Hopkins, where uh, women used financial muscle to lever themselves into a position of uh, educational equality at Hopkins, and uh, Osler and his colleagues indeed had to deal with women students, not very many, but uh, female pioneers. Uh, Osler was uh, far more willing to get on with the women and accept them and encourage them than most of his colleagues, including Harvey Cushing, certainly than the other uh, great founders of Hopkins. Uh, and his networks later on did, in fact, include women. Uh, in his Oxford years, there were women he befriended, uh, and whose careers he advanced in the same way that he uh, befriended and advanced male medical students. Uh, Mabel uh, Fitzgerald, for example, who Oxford finally gave a degree to when she was 100 years old. Um, there was the uh, woman Osler nicknamed Trotula after a medieval doctor and um, happily uh, advanced her career. So, no, he did make that adjustment. Now, he, uh, like all, every, all the men of his generation, he his ideal woman uh, was a, uh, a wife and mother. Uh, and Osler's ideal woman was his wife, Grace, who was a very traditional woman. Mm -hmm. But uh, they knew that this change was coming in medicine, and uh, better than most, Osler adjusted to it. When Osler took up the Regis professorship in Oxford and arrived, I think he was a little bit lost for a while and trying to find his way. One of the things that comes out, and I think you allude to this at one point in your book, is that the clinicians in Oxford and in England generally found him a little less than advertised at the bedside. I'm wondering if you know anything more about that and if you could enlarge upon that. Uh, I wish I could enlarge upon it. I just picked up the comments from the literature that uh, some of the London people said that Osler was a good clinician, but they'd seen as good and seen better. Of course, the the, the British 
uh, clinical tradition is one of, of really high excellence and uh, particularly centered in the London hospitals. And uh, uh, some people have said, well, this was just sour grapes about Osler and this was the fear of the London clinicians that they were losing patients to this to the Regis professor at Oxford, which had never happened before. I honestly can't sort it out. It's um, impossible at this date to uh, to exactly assess Osler as a clinician. I present a certain amount of evidence from, again, certainly from from former students who found in Britain who found him dazzling. Uh, because of the force of his personality and because of his democratic um, ways. And certainly I have a great deal from the, the American years on his uh, the way in which young Americans were dazzled by his expertise. It is possible that by the time Osler was in England, he had been spreading himself so thinly for so many years that you would think that at times uh, he would simply not be up on specific uh, problems and ailments in the way that younger people might be. Uh, I mean, it's <laughs> I'm an aging professor, and I know how easy it is to get out of touch. Uh, Osler was pretty good at staying in touch, but but I I, I can see how. Some people would say, well, the old guy is maybe losing it here and there. Mm -hmm. One of the sad things about the end of Osler's life and his time in England is the First World War. And for someone who wasn't there and didn't know much about it, it's fascinating to get an inside look at what it did to people and their lives and the amount of carnage that there was. Um, and yet I found that the Oslers were trying to explain particularly to Americans what was going on over there and why America would be implicated willy-nilly. Um, something about that whole scene, to say nothing of losing his son, had seemed to weigh Osler down and kind of break his spirit. Do you understand what it was? Yes. Uh, the Osler had celebrated medical progress, had celebrated... Uh, the progress of, uh, of humanity in his lifetime. He was a great Victorian that way, and the Victorian age was a time of wonderful uh, human achievement. The dawn of the 20th century seemed to hold out wonderful progress uh, for humanity, materially, scientifically, maybe even spiritually. World War One was a ghastly tragedy in every way. Uh, it stripped away the veneer of European civilization, and um, we saw the European nations descend to a, a ghastly barbarism. Uh, I tried very hard in telling the story of the Oslers at war to capture the that oppressive sense of the war, both as it weighed on William and Grace Osler and their son Revere in Oxford, but also as a kind of terrible tragedy that uh, affects everything Osler has st had stood for. Uh, 
And I believe he felt that himself. At the end of it, he's lost his son. His, his optimism is in ruins. Other people have said he's a broken man, and of course he dies a year after World War ends of a broken heart. They have said. One of the things that I, despite all of the things I say about the awfulness of that experience, I then argue that, and, and to my mind, it's one of the most remarkable things in Oster's life, that after losing his son, and so much of what he stands for, he continues to keep going. My, my, the second last chapter of my book is entitled Never Use a Crutch. He tries to bounce back. Uh, he's carrying on after the war. Uh, in his last illness, he, uh, seems to me that he's not, uh, destroyed by a broken heart. He's destroyed by bacteria that nobody can treat. Mm-hmm. There have been other outstanding physicians in the last 130 years. There are some prominent physicians working now, but none of them seem as prominent or likely to gain the prominence of a, of a William Osler. Is this because of Osler, or have the times passed when we elevated people to such prominence? I have noticed uh, that doctors do honor their mentors. Uh, it's not just the Hippocratic Oath uh, that requires them to do this, but, uh, and maybe our, med- this is something that I've gradually learned and haven't written into the biography as much as I wish I had. It seems to me that in medicine, uh, it's still an extraordinary thing for young physicians to hold human life in their hands and to have to deal with patients on a life-and-death basis. And when they're very young and just out of medical school, these are experiences of overwhelming um, emotional content. The I, I, I find that physicians appreciate very deeply the people who teach them how to do these things and how to handle it. So there is a reverence for teachers and mentors in medicine that I think will never go away. Uh, I think that there will never be somebody like Oser who will dominate the field like a colossus as he did. The field is is too big. I think there probably are little Oslers all over the place, and I mean that in an entirely healthy way. Great medical teachers and great role models. Uh, a few years ago, students were all too cool to talk about role models, and it was the women when they came into the professions who said, of course, we need role models and we need mentors. And it seems to me that we we do need that, uh, whether we need we don't need icons, we don't need heroes, we don't need plaster saints, but I think we still do need people to look up to and say, boy, this is this is what I'd like to aspire to. Well, thank you for writing this book. What comes next for Michael Bliss's pen? 
or is it the computer screen? <laughs> it is the computer screen, uh, which makes it possible to do books like this. Uh, I My appetite has been very much whetted. Uh, when I did the Osler book, I spent an enormous amount of time in the papers of Harvey Cushing, for whom, despite his limited biographical skills, I developed an enormous admiration. Uh, at a point in my book, I comment that uh, Cushing was possibly the most talented uh, and influential American physician of the first third of the 20th century, and I really would not now like to go on to write a new biography of, uh, of Cushing for the 21st century. Well, I wish you bon courage with the next project, and I thank you for doing this interview. Uh, my pleasure. Good afternoon. Goodbye. That was an interview from our archives. Dr. Ken Flagel was interviewing Michael Bliss on his biography about Sir William Osler. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. While you're there, you can browse and listen to our many past episodes and you can leave us a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <music>